Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics of the Cavendish Lab at the University of Cambridge. I'm Jacob Butler and I work in the Outreach Office here at the Cavendish Laboratory. And I'm Paolo Molinini and I'm a postdoc in theoretical physics here at the Cavendish. Joining us this month is Melanie Tribble, the clean room manager for the Cavendish Lab. For the last three decades, she has kept the clean rooms of the Cavendish up and running, going from working with one research group to providing support for the entire laboratory and external companies, ensuring that the ultra clean environment needed for the creation of modern semiconductors is maintained despite aging hardware and a constant influx of new users. Growing up in Birmingham, she found an enthusiasm for physics at an early age, despite having to travel to the local boys' school to actually find a physics teacher. She later went on to study at Oxford, where she picked up a husband as well as a degree in physics. After a brief stint working in atomic energy and a short time selling store credit cards in Canada, she found herself job hunting in Cambridge just as a position in the clean rooms became available and has been here ever since. From starting off with nearly no knowledge of clean room equipment, Melanie has overseen two extensions to the clean rooms and an explosion in the types of devices created in them. When she's not fixing aging apparatuses or making devices for undergraduates, she's training users or helping researchers turn their plans into reality. Today, we'll chat with her about what it takes to keep a clean room running, her path into science, and the changes she's seen during her time in the lab. Stay with us. Well, welcome, Melanie. It's great to have you. Hi, thank you for asking me here. That's right. Now, Melanie, thanks again for joining us. Uh, for any listeners who, like myself, have only the vaguest idea, what is a clean room and what it's used for? So clean room is an area that is probably about 100,000 times cleaner than the corridors that you're wandering around at the moment. We need to make sure that it's clean so that dust particles don't land on the surfaces of the um, semiconductor devices that you're making. And it's used just for semiconductors, is it? Uh, yes, main, yes. <laughs> And so what's a typical day like for you then? So tend to get in fairly early in the morning. Uh, Post-COVID, not quite as early as I used to get in. I used to be around at sort of half seven sometimes in the morning. Now it tends to be about eight o'clock. Wander around the clean room, check that all the equipment is still functioning from overnight. Uh, check the consumables. So that would include the uh, chemicals that we use, gloves, uh, metals and things that we use to evaporate just check that everything's okay um we have um our own mbe machines which grow um stretches called uh hemp's high electron mobility transistors so sometimes i make devices on those uh it's basically some sort of quality control so they are basically testing that you know their doping and all the concentrations and things and their thicknesses are correct um, so I make the devices and then somebody else measures them and then that ensures that if they're growing more complicated structures for other users 
that everything is working okay um obviously if there's a piece of kit that's not working i have to fix it either myself i've got a couple of probably postdocs that are quite knowledgeable um and also a technician though she does a lot of research work at the moment as well so we're really limited on support um i only work part-time so i'm basically trying to run the lab nearly on my own with a lot of <laughs> lot of goodwill support from the postdocs because obviously you know they're supposed to be doing research but then if they can't do the research because the piece of kit is broken then it's in <laughs> their interest to help fix it um obviously you know sometimes i then need to come out and order things um beginning of the academic year obviously we tend to get a lot of new users um students postdocs people from outside so i either need to they need to, like safety to around the clean room and then we have like a set um training procedure to train them um either me or somebody else um usually we only train sort of a couple of people at a time i've only got two shoulders that people can look over <laughs> um so yeah it takes quite a while sometimes so people sort of have to wait um let's say you know and also there's a lot to take in if you know nothing about um using the clean room that i find that you know probably half days is quite useful it also fits in with me because i only tend to work two thirds three quarter days so it means that i've also got time to go and do some of the things that i sort of need to do to keep the clean room functioning so we mentioned in the intro that you've been working in this clean room for 30 years yeah um but when did you first feel that science and physics in particular might be something for you i guess at school i was good at maths and good at uh, science so it seemed to be the natural progression that if you're good at something and you tend to like it and want to do it that doesn't actually follow from my daughters um, <laughs> yeah I went to an all-girls school in Birmingham uh, husband calls it a local comp it was a technical grammar up to a couple of years before I started obviously I did back then it was O levels I don't actually have a physics O-level. I have something called a physical science O-level, which is a mix of chemistry and physics. As you mentioned before, the um, school didn't actually have a physics teacher. They had a chemistry teacher who was very good, went beyond what you'd need for the physical science. Um, boys' school was sort of across the playing field. Um, so when it came to A-levels, four girls wandered over there to have their physics lessons over there. Um, and I think actually the physics teacher was quite amazed that sort of this girl that had come over from the girls' school actually knew more than some of the boys over there. Um, so it wasn't really common for girls uh, from your school to pursue hard sciences then? Um, I don't know. The There was no problem because it was sort of set up. In fact, the chemistry was taught half in the girls' school and half in the boys' school. So we sort of had this sort of arrangement. Um, but yeah, the let's say the, I mean, out of the, a sixth form was probably 20, 25 people. So only, I think there were only sort of four girls sort of doing it. And how do you think things have changed since then in terms of how girls pursue sciences? I haven't really been back, so I don't know whether there are a lot more girls taking up. I think um, just generally looking around the lab in the 30 years, there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a huge increase in, um, you know, female sort of especially in senior positions. We do get a few more um, students coming in. Um, I think in the last few years, I wouldn't say it's 50-50, but it's been slightly more than sort of the odd one. When I was in St Hilda's, Oxford, um, it's all female college. 
Um, which I didn't apply to, haven't been to an all-girls school. However, St. John's didn't want me. Uh, <laughs> which actually proved quite good because I was in a, my year at St. Hilda's was a group of four students. Whereas if you went to a so-called mixed college, you'd often find you were the sole female in a group of six, eight male students. Um, and they tended to sort of maybe club together, do things together. Female um, got left out. Um, I guess, as you mentioned, met a husband. So that was quite useful because I probably got the best of both worlds. Um, spent an awful lot of time in St. John's, which happens to be opposite the science block. So I tend to go out in the morning, go to lectures, go back, have lunch, stay there, do some work. Um, and then sort of, you know, whatever in the evening and tend to go back to St. Hilda's sort of to sort of sleep really i didn't spend a, <laughs> a lot of time it was nice the you know st hilda's is based on the river so we had our own punts actually in the grounds that we punt from the correct end in oxford right <laughs> here so why did you choose the physics course at, uh, at oxford then what was it that motivated that um well oxford or just physics well both which uh, whichever it was you felt was the um, deciding factor i guess i just wanted i knew oxford and cambridge was you know, supposedly sort of the best, wanted to go to the best. Uh, my school didn't have a history of sending um, students to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, I think there was one girl the year above who studied English at Oxford, one girl the year below, I think, came to Cambridge. Um, but I got a hold of pest past papers and I pestered my teachers to go through them <laughs> every minute of the day you know I got a free lesson I mean I did do four A levels so I didn't have that many free periods that coincided with them but lunch times things after school um and I just I suppose liked it wanted to do physics and thought that Oxford was probably I think it was the possibly the tripos at Cambridge put me off that oh, it was yeah. probably more general yeah sort so of, the, the, you a more broad sort of thing that um and I can't I can't remember when you sat the papers because obviously I sat them at the beginning of my upper sixth as opposed to husband who took them at the end I think Cambridge I don't know if they had different pay. I don't know. There was something with the entrance exam that Oxford was, I think, but well, don't, don't worry. I'm obviously, I've ended up here. Um, but it was sort of something about sort of, you know, the entrance exams and how the papers were set. And just like I say, I think the, the course sort of looked better yeah. here. And you mentioned your school yeah. wasn't set up for sort of students with Oxbridge aspirations and that you were the first person from your family to go to university. How did this impact your application, do you think, this, okay, so I was the first person to, I say, from my family, they were very supportive. The school, like I say, I pestered the teachers, um, but they were very supportive. They, you know, I think possibly it was like a feather in their cap to say they mm. got one of their students to to Oxford. Um, but I mean, I, you know, a lot of it was off my own bat. Okay, yes, I, you know, teachers were helpful, but I sort of initiated a lot of it. Um yeah, I think that's something that strikes me as different between state schools and independent schools is there's that sort of where the push is coming from, I think, towards these very selective universities. And it's interesting to hear that it's... it's <laughs> yeah, as opposed to husband, his school probably sent half the year to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, they even had, if you want to do this subject, you apply to this 
college. <laughs> they arranged for you to go up with somebody that was already there, stay a few days. So they got a whole, mm. I won't call it an old boys network, but very <laughs> similar to sort of that. And also the course. I mean, I got to Oxford. I was handed stuff labelled revision. I'd never seen it in my life before. <laughs> was he'd done most of the first year course at school. And it's so, you know, there was, I don't know how it is now, and I think it's better. Mm. Um, I was very much spoon-fed, even in my A-levels. Notes on the blackboard, write them down. The thought of having to go and look in a book and do things myself, whereas um, my children, uh, they went to Hills Road. Obviously, they didn't do science, um, but they did a lot more, had to do a lot more learning from books and finding things out themselves rather than just being handed things so yeah. I think in that way certainly um I say I don't know what my the school that I went to does now but I think things have progressed more yeah that's good to hear and you've you mentioned a couple of times that you met your husband at the university I was wondering if you could uh, tell us the story of that okay so my mate I love Tribble my maiden name was Trinder um when we went for interview we were interviewed in alphabetical order um I'd been efficient, was there early, so husband hadn't been called in to interview. Um, so stood in the queue, you know, outside the tutor's sort of rooms, chatting to him. Um, he'd also been round Oxford and knew round, so I think, you know, tagged around with him a little bit, going around some of the sort of labs and things. Got to Oxford in the October, um, as you know, didn't really know anywhere. Turn up at lectures. Think, oh yeah, that's that's the guy I was talking to at interview. Let's go and talk to him. <laughs> the only familiar face that I sort of knew. So that's how I met him. If my surnames hadn't coincided, <laughs> if my hadn't applied to St John's, we'd have probably never, never met and got together. But you weren't very efficient, and it turned up early. Uh, right? Yes. <laughs> Beautiful. It's uh, some sort of serendipity. Yes. Right? <laughs> Lovely. Well. Thank you very much. We're going to break briefly for news now, and then we'll be back after that. And now it's time for a short break from the interview, bringing you some of the latest research news from the Cavendish. A team of scientists at the Nanophotonics Centre at the Cavendish Lab, in collaboration with the Department of Chemistry and the Institute of Manufacturing here at Cambridge, as well as the Max Planck Institute in Germany, have demonstrated a new method to monitor what happens to liquid electrolytes inside batteries while these charge and discharge for many cycles. Their results, published in Nature Communications earlier this year, revealed important information on how lithium ions travel inside batteries during charging cycles. Their monitoring technique relies on Raman spectroscopy, a light-based analytical technique which allows researchers to measure the energies of molecular vibrations in a sample. Because particular chemical bonds have different fingerprints in this technique, this type of spectroscopy allows researchers to monitor the presence of different molecules in the samples that they measure. The team's results are novel in the sense that they are able to run the spectroscopy technique on liquid electrolytes in batteries while these are being charged and discharged in real time. In the words of lead author Dr. Emmanuel Miele, this is a great way to peer inside the black box, finding out why batteries fail and how to treat them right. To read the paper or the press release and learn more about this cool research, head to the link in the podcast description or directly to our website.
Welcome back to our interview with Melanie Tribble, clean room manager here at the Cavendish Lab. So Melanie, before the break, we were talking about your time at Oxford. And after that, you mentioned that you had an interesting career path. Um, could you tell us more about your work experiences? Graduated in the summer of 1986. Um, I got married in the October 1986. Husband was staying on to do a DPhil because they call them DPhils in Oxford. They have to be different to anywhere else. So PhD for anybody else that doesn't know what I'm talking about. Um, I then went and worked for uh, Harwell, part of the Atomic UK Atomic Energy Authority. Uh, worked on optical fibres. The optical fibres, if they're exposed to radiation, go dark. So we were looking at two ends of the spectra. We were looking at um, fibres that didn't go dark so well, so that your communication systems would still work if they were exposed. And also to use them as sort of a dosimeter. So obviously if they went, as they went darker, you could tell how much radiation and things. Um, so basically it was optical sensors and that sort of thing. Did that for three years. Husband decided he was wanted to do a postdoc somewhere abroad. I said it had got to be somewhere that spoke English because I'm absolutely hopeless at languages. <laughs> um, we decided that probably Australia and New Zealand were a little far to go. So that basically left Canada and the States. Um, it was supposed to be easier for me to get a job in Canada um, because of Pop Commonwealth. the Commonwealth and yeah. things like that. Um, so we went over to Toronto for two years. Um, it ended up that it wasn't quite so easy for me to get a job. Um, their science degrees are a lot more general over there. So even though it came from my degree came from Oxford, you know, it was difficult to get a job. Also, you needed something like the equivalent of our national insurance number. You couldn't have a national insurance number until you got a job, but you couldn't get a job until you got a national insurance number. <laughs> uh, this is kind of like, so it was yeah. a little bit. So I basically they this you know saw an advert in the paper. They wanted somebody to sell credit cards. Well, not sell, but you know, sign people up for credit cards. Um, so I thought, yeah, we'll go and do that for a bit. We'll get our, you know, get into the system, get national insurance, and then we'll try and apply elsewhere. Um, so looking back, it was probably really bad encouraging people to get into debt and cards. <laughs> but I found that people because I've got an English accent, people would stop and talk to me just to hear the accent. <laughs> we're fascinated by yeah. the accent. So. Um, so, and while they were sort of saying, I'd say, oh, come on, five minutes. Let me fill this out. It doesn't cost you anything. Get the card. If you don't want it, cut it up at the end. Mm -hmm. um, and I spent two years, well, nearly two years doing that. It got very difficult at the end. I was getting really, really fed up. Um, it was only, I think, the fact that we knew we'd come back. We had a really great time out there. Uh, saw lots of baseball, something <laughs> called Canadian football, which is not quite American football. A um, little bit of ice hockey. Um, saw some great places because husband had sort of, you know trips associated with you know, going and visiting and talking to places, so I could tag along. Um, anyway, at the end of his two years, we decided we were going to come back. Um, he got a job over the road at um, Institute of Astronomy. He's an astrophysicist. Yeah, he's got a theoretical 
astrophysics degree. His uh, PhD is something in magnetic fields in clusters of galaxies. So he's completely theoretical. He has looked down a telescope, I think, when he was over in Quebec. <laughs> but basically, it's just to try it out. Yeah. <laughs> I wandered in here looking for a job. Um, Semiconductor physics had a vacancy for somebody to start working in the clean room um, and doing some standard assessment. So that's like the quantity control I was on about earlier. Um, and just took it from there. And 30 years later, I'm still here. More paperwork <laughs> and admin than actually doing any re re research. Um, though I am doing some um, devices for the undergrad labs. So that's some real science. It was re hadn't made them for about 10 years um, and had somebody who's now retired helping me out. So it was like really exciting when I'd actually made the device and put it on like the uh, scope, got an IV curve and it was like, hey, it works. <laughs> I made this. I made this. I was like, <laughs> you know, sent it to sort of friends who had no idea about physics or what, whatever. Go, look, and they went, I'm sure, you know, I got really excited. And went, I'm sure it's impressive. But, and then somebody came back with a whole load, oh, that's a such and such. I said, did you go and Google my the initials I put into it? <laughs> my partner's a biologist and she often shows me pictures of blobs and I go, oh, it's lovely. It's really lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what was it like starting here all those years ago? Um, so the clean room was very small. Um, we had one main lab with most of the equipment in and a couple of smaller rooms where we sort of cut up the wafers to start with and then bonded them. Um, there were only about 25 users of the clean room. We all had individual suits then. Uh, now we've probably got, um, the door system probably has 90 odd names logged on it. Um, though that does include maintenance staff because obviously they need to be able to get in to help fix things. Um, it was fairly male dominated. Uh, couple of technicians were female. I don't think, and apologies if I've forgotten anybody, I don't think there were any uh, male, um, certainly uh, postdocs. We did get a couple in the next sort of few years. Um, and yeah, I didn't know anything about uh, gallium arsenide, semiconductor physics. So the clean room is predominantly gallium arsenide based, or at least it was back then. It has evolved since then we have graphene we have some silicon indium phosphide all sorts of strange sort of things that some people want to come in which brings whole its own set of problems because we have contamination cross-contamination between the different so compounds. you know i try and explain it to people a couple of comparisons <laughs> um either you've got a cake making factory someone wants to make biscuits they go, well, it's no problem. It's water, flour, eggs. Well, you can't quite do that. It's not set up to make biscuits. It's the wrong shape. Or you've got a vegetarian sausage making factory. Someone wants to come make, make sausages. Well, sausages are sausages. Well, yes, but you're not going to want meat in your vet vegetarian, same as, you know, um, with semiconductors. Um, so hopefully most people possibly know that you get doping, makes your semiconductors work. Um conduction and things. So if you've got cross-contamination and you end up with molecules going into your semiconductors, you're, you, know, you might change all the structures and the electrical properties. So we have to be very careful with what people want to do. We, which measures are in place to avoid this cross-contamination? 
basically, we have to ask exactly what people want to do. Uh, we do have several pieces of kit that initially look like the initially look the same. Um, so we've got a few um, evaporators that will put down the metals, titanium, gold. So we've got some that may be a more general use uh, and some that are kept for specialist pieces, you know, special projects. Uh, but usually it's, yeah, go away, find the material data sheet. We need to know, you know, exactly what it is and if it's going to be stable. Um, this obviously does rely on everybody telling me exactly what they are going to <laughs> be putting in pieces of kit. Um, or sometimes someone says, yeah, I'm using this. It's been in there. And I think, yeah, did I actually know it was in there to start with? You know, somebody's been, yeah. So, it, yeah, we rely on people telling us and, let's like say, going away and looking to make sure that it seems to be okay. So, you know, so I get lots of requests. Oh, I need to come and use the clean room. And it's, well, yes, we need to know what you want to do to know if it's A, feasible in the first place, and B, it's not going to cause any contamination issues. So that's interesting, because as a, a non-scientist, uh, I'd imagine this, the, the researchers would be the ones who were very particular about what was in there, making sure there was nothing that had ever been in there that wasn't what they wanted. Whereas actually, it sounds like they're quite sort of slapdash, and you're the ones going, actually, this is going to uh, going to make something that doesn't work at all or works very differently. Yeah, it depends. I think some people obviously don't appreciate, you know, that there is a cross-contamination issue, you know, or I'm working on this and my thing's fine and that's fine, I can put it in sort of anywhere um so yeah and you know obviously it depends sometimes on the temperatures things that might be stable you know room temperature they want to put it in something that heats it up to sort of you know three four hundred degrees and hang on well yeah we <laughs> things start to happen depending <laughs> what it is this is why we need the data sheets to know how stable things are yeah it's just really interesting hearing about that sort of layers of expertise isn't it it's like no one's a generalist anymore you need a team around you yeah you? i mean you know usually i go yeah, I think it might be all right. I just need to check with a few <laughs> colleagues to make sure. And also then it's sort of also a joint decision. If something goes wrong, it's like, well, I did circulate an email asking pe other people if this is all okay. It's just like handing the rope of the guillotine well, into the yeah. crowd. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I mean, some things I'll go, no, you definitely can't do that. Yeah. And so you talked a little bit about how, it, how the sort of users have changed over the years. How have the clean rooms themselves changed over the years? So, as I say, we started off with one area, uh, about 24 users. Um, that expanded fairly soon to sort of 40, 50 users. Um, and then we expanded. Um, I can pinpoint it exactly because I can remember washing down the walls when I was quite heavily pregnant. So <laughs> that was 1994. We expanded um, and had the one side. And then I believe it was early 2000s though for some reason must have, must have lost a few brain cells when I had children because I can't pinpoint it exactly <laughs> we somehow managed to get permission to block off the corridor and extend the clean rooms the other side of the corridor um so this building uh well say the Mott building uh can usually walk around all four sides uh well you can't and the floor the the uh, SP clean room is on because we've blocked off and you have to go through our clean room um so clean room is now a lot bigger a uh, lot more users so initially they were mainly semiconductor physics now i have users from other groups tfm the, there were a few tfms i think to start with so tfm amop we also have material science we have 
people from other universities, so UCL, um, and outside companies, though they have usually got association like Toshiba and Toeview, so they're on the Science Park anyway, so they are not necessarily outside companies. Um, and yeah, so it's a lot more wider range of um, users. And has the apparatus changed much at all in that time? No, there are still pieces <laughs> of kit there that were there when I started 30 years ago. Uh, it's a bit worrying. You go to the computer museum in Cambridge and they have all these old computers and you go, yes, that's what's running my kit. Um, <laughs> yes, we have had some newer things. Uh, we do have a new brand new shiny masculine that's for whole wafers because um, we've now got research grants that require that. As well, I mean, looking more generally, you've been uh, yeah, at Cavendish 2, so the Asbestos and Pebble Dash, the 70s monstrosity you're in at the moment, for over half its life. Has the department sort of changed much in the time that you've been here? Yeah, I guess, obviously, we now have the hubs. Hmm. So that's been a big change from having um, individual sort of group admin. I still, you know, even though I've been here 30 years, still don't know what goes on in the Rutherford building <laughs> a, a lot. Um, you know, maintenance has changed a little bit, though Alan, I think, has been here nearly as long as mm. I have. Um, obviously, Catherine was here when I started as well. Um, I don't really know a lot about, this probably sounds awful, I don't really know a lot of what about the other groups sort of mm. do and evolve. Um, so, obviously, I know how my uh, group as you as sort of evolved um building wise yes um gone are the times you could put your head in the ceiling and trace <laughs> pipes and things because of all the asbestos things everything is now sealed i've got i've got a couple of uh, good people dave ellis john griffiths who helped with a lot of the design of the new clearing because they know uh, a lot about all the services and things um and can remember where the pipe work and things are. I think I don't know where some of the shut-off valves are in the ceiling. <laughs> and if I did know, I can't get up there. Um, and yeah. I have a, a curiosity, more than a question. Yeah. Um, so how, of course, you have to be in the lab, right, to, to do all these, like, calibrations and, and measurements and everything. So how, how were you able to work during the pandemic? Because physically somebody had to go in, right? So did you take turns or how did you that work? So, so um, the week before, uh, the, I think the lab shut down on the Friday in March. Um, I think I decided on the Tuesday that everything was coming and we needed to start turning things off. You know, because you can't just flick a switch and walk away. Mm -hmm. You need some things need to cool down. Some of the pumps need to cool down before you can turn off the last pump and things. So tended to sh we shut it on the Tuesday. Um, then obviously Boris shut the, down the country from the Friday onwards. So that was, what, mid-March. Um, I think it was about mid-May where we had to lock the infrastructure was in place and we started to have to write individual risk assessments for the various rooms. Um, so the clean room is an interconnected lab of about 12 rooms with obviously multiple users. So it's not quite like somebody just going into a lab. So it took a while to sort out what PPE, what uh, room occupancy we needed, things like that. Um, so it was, I think, towards the end of June. So for three months, I sat at home and 
answered emails, updated <laughs> some of the paperwork, the risk assessments, some of the things like that. Um, then came back at the end of June when the uh, risk assessments and everything had been, and room occupancy notices and things had been in place. Uh, technician Abby and I spent a week wandering around ensuring that we got um, the sanitizer sprays, the hand gel, turning on all the equipment, making sure that everything was working, finding that um, some of the one-way systems didn't work. So my <laughs> nitrogen dewer, I could bring up into the up in the mop lift. I could then take it to the ladies' toilet, but I couldn't take it straight on to where it needed to be <laughs> done with the pipe work. So I went, this isn't going to work. <laughs> also, uh, moving things from the e-beam lab up to the clean room, if you followed the one-way system, you had to take it out of the building. And I'm going, <laughs> we're, not, we're not moving wafers that are sort of thousands of pounds outside the building. It was like, well, use your discretion. If there's nobody coming, yes, you could go the wrong way. But, yeah, I basically can't work at home. Um, so I had to come in. Um, so we came in. Most of the rooms were single occupancy we had put in a booking system. We'd already got booking systems for some pieces of kit, so just expanded that to individual pieces of kit and rooms. Um, some of the big rooms, we could have more than... They were uh, separated up into zones, so we could have more than one person. Um, and obviously then, if people wanted to come and use, they had to go through all the department, health and safety sort of stuff, um, and COVID. Um, we obviously... I've transitioned a little bit sort of through the various rules and um, easing of the rules. So we got more people in there. We, we initially limited, I think, to 10 people overall in the clean room. Um, like I say, most of the rooms were single occupancy. But we've got some of the corridors are quite tight. So you'd obviously got pinch points where people were walking past each other. Um, we had problems with people. We initially said we were going to wear visors. But then the department said they wanted to wear masks, just to wear masks, which obviously then we had problems with people's glasses steaming up. And oh, also uh, we have to wear, even if you don't wear uh, prescription safety glasses, you've got to wear um, safety uh, glasses because of the splashes of chemicals and things like that. So it was people going, um, but I can't see what I'm doing when I'm pouring this <laughs> chemical out. That's more of a risk than, you know, possibly catching COVID, depending. So, you know, we, we did find some spray that tended to work and told people that, you know, they just you know, have to sort of manage somehow, try different safety spectacles because you've got, stores have got a variety of sort of different designs. And there's always this issue of shedding, right, that you mentioned. So it had to be the right material, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, I did manage to find some that were clean room compatible, so then they didn't actually say that they were type two or type three. And you at that point went, they probably are, but because they got like Chinese or Japanese writing all over, they weren't <laughs> certified. So yeah, we basically were trying to make sure that we got the distance um, between, between people. So we didn't have any close working. We'd stop, we stopped training people. Um, Abby and I then did a very amateurish lot of um, videos um, showing people how initial how to use pieces of kit it's very noisy in there we're wearing masks in fact i probably needed chris um so we shot a whole load of stuff just on uh mobile phones and then we did like powerpoint presentations so we didn't have any sound with the actual videos but it did give people an initial introduction to looking 
uh, pieces of equipment. It also meant after I'd shown them or somebody had shown them, they could go back and look at, at them to refresh them. We did training on a one-to-one -one basis, not, you know, as I said before, it tended to be two. Um, but it was a slow process getting people back in. Um, even now, I don't think we're back up to sort of full capacity. Um, people have tended, you know, they've you know, slightly changed what they're doing. So um, it was quite a mini revolution. So, yeah, the, it was quite a different way of working in there. Um, so now we've still got, we've basically removed all of the room occupancies, um, unless we're close working, we're not wearing masks in there, much like the rest of, it's really led by what the department sort of says. We are possibly slight, you know, slightly further, though you know, it's a clean room, the aircon when it's working has lots of changes, air changes per hour. So the filter is automatically. Yeah, so the air is automatically changed because we want to obviously take away the dirty, uh, so air with the particles so it's HEPA filtered anyway. So it was probably safer coming back and working in there than go to your local <laughs> Tesco's. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a whole new, um, you know, and some of the things we've sort of kept some of you know some of the more heavily pieces of equipment we've tended to keep the booking system. Um, I believe obviously when we're going to the Ray Dolby, we're probably going to be moving to different booking system and a lot more booking. Um, but then it is quite nice if you want to use a piece of equipment um, to know that you can come and use, but. Um, the whole process of doing, making a device uses several pieces of equipment and several steps can go wrong. So it, it was quite difficult to plan, you know, the previous person might overrun, you might overrun, and that has a knock-on effect all through the day on, you know, your booking system. You know, if you think something's going to take half an hour, but you have to repeat it, then it's difficult to you know, manage your time so you know you know there's a lot of talking to people and negotiation we're going i'm a little bit late or can i you know can we share that piece of equipment because some of the pieces of equipment you can put several pieces of semiconductor in at the same time if you if you want the same deposition you know same layers of metal down so i mean i think uh, the human component uh it's very important in those uh situations well, thanks a lot, Melanie, for coming here and telling telling us all your stories. And we wish you best of luck with everything and the new move to right. the Cavendish. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks to our guests, Melanie Tribble and to our producer, Chris, for this episode. The news today was brought to you by Simone. If you want to learn more about what's been discussed in this episode or want to join us at the Cavendish, please go to phy.cam.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening in to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. We'd love to put your questions to our team. Send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag People Doing Physics. You can also email us at podcast at phy.cam.ac.uk. We'll be back next month. Bye.